the second question I have to ask myself is, can I buy enough of it? Right. I don't want to own one in stock, so I want to own 50. Right. And how often is that type of product coming in the market? And we all know for the last 12, 18 months, supply has been going down recently. Right. So you want to get a better sense of when those properties come up, we want to be able to stack them. And that's why we built technology. It is a pleasure to be back on the Real Estate Syndication Show. It's your guest host, Josh McKellen of Accountable Equity and our own podcast, Capital Hacking. However, today it's about a wonderful guest we're about to meet. His name is Sif Kafagi, and I'm going to tell you more about him in a moment. But let me take a quick edu- um, break here for public service announcement. Years ago, Whitney Sewell, with all the great work he does on the show, being one of the largest real estate podcast in the world. He also dedicates himself to children finding homes through adoption. And we have joined him, Melanie and I, my wife, have joined him to be donors and partners as much as we possibly can to help the Omna Foundation. And there's something special that Whitney and I want you to know about. On August 18th, outside of New York City in a town called LBI, it's in New Jersey, we will be hosting his golf outing a VIP golf outing called LBI at LBI National. The monies will all go to Omna Foundation. It's in partnership with me and Melanie and our accountable equity community. And you are invited. If it's last minute, I know, but you can do it. It's okay. Get in the car, drive out, be here. Uh, Fed, August 18th, check out more information at accountableequity.com. That's just two words, accountable equity. Now, as we get into another incredible episode of the real estate syndication show. I'm really curious about this, this gentleman, Seif. He and I have already had a quick conversation. And in that brief conversation, we've realized this gentleman and his team at TechVestor have already raised over $60 million. And they're in a space that I think we all want to learn more about, and that's short-term rental. So without any further delay, Seif, would you come on the big stage here? Hey, Josh, thanks for having me. So Seif, I've given a little intro on your but I'd love for you to go back a step for someone who hasn't met you yet and your company, TechVestor. Would you mind giving a little bit of the backstory? Yeah. First and foremost, I'm a father of two beautiful boys and a husband. And I'm privileged enough to lead a team and a company here at TechVestor and incredible people. Without them, none of this is possible. And without the investor community that we have, none of this is possible. But TechVestor makes investing in Airbnbs, aka short-term rentals, dead simple. It's a syndication. Reg D 506 C, uh, you can invest as little as 25,000, which is 90% less than if you're going to do it yourself. Right. And, and all the headaches that come with it. Our team leads with team technology and traction, meaning our team comes from Facebook, Apple, Bacasi, Horton. We have advisors from companies like AirDNA, which leads the space for short-term rental data analytics. Uh, we have key people in key places and uh, we've done this 120 times. So we know what to do, but also equally what not to do. We know where to buy, what product is right, and we use technology and data to guide decision-making at every step of the process, including acquisition and sourcing. We underwrite 100,000-plus properties on any given month. 96% of the time, the deal sucks. We don't buy it. And then we window shop, given how much equity we've raised, bring that to our investor community. We syndicate across our two funds. One fund currently is open for investment, and that's our STR2 portfolio. And we generate roughly in the range of 8 to 12% target cash on cash, projected roughly five-year hold, 
than everything else that you know and love about syndications, tax benefits, bonus depreciation, and everything else that comes with it. But we're uh, one of the first and largest uh, in the space. We're trying to institutionalize the world of short-term rentals and make it better for investors, guests, and everyone else in between. Well said. So let's go back to data and 90,000 plus analysis a month. How does that work? You got to break that down. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to make it real visual. So think you got a funnel, right? You're trying to get something, you're trying to get some liquid into, into some other smaller container, right? So really what we're going to do is we map about 257 local markets across the country that we have an interest in. It could be because I made some sort of list because we know something about it or because we're curious, right? And then from there, every single property that hits the market in that local region, right? We're going to underwrite it as a short-term rental. Right. As soon as it hits the MLS, we typically know about it within about 15 seconds. And it's going to be underwritten as a short-term rental. And as everything is happening behind the scenes, it's going to spit out to us, this meets your buy box or it doesn't. Our very simple buy box across the board starts with, can I legally do it here? And does it meet my price to rent ratio? Right. And in each market across the country, we have a defined price to rent ratio given our risk profile there. Right. It's just like if you're going to buy class A or class C, there's a risk profile to both. Right. Not saying one's better than the other. From there, uh, anything that meets our buy box is shown in our window shop, for lack of a better word. If you ever walk down Rodeo Drive or Beverly Hills and pour anything inside, but you want to be able to look at, look at the windows and see what's there, that's exactly what's there. Our head of acquisition, Taylor, then will actually go through and, you know, pick and choose what he likes. Does this work? Does this work? Do we want to buy it? And then, of course, the human element comes through because we all know real estate is hyper-local and humans matter. And he'll be able to go and be like, mm, this house looks real ugly. So we're going to have to have a renovation, but it's going to be a lot higher here than what we maybe initially projected. Or our revenue costs don't necessarily support it very accurately, right? The data quality isn't super strong. So really our goal is to take that huge, large funnel in any given market and export essentially really the following. In X market, I'm going to use Scottsdale as an example. In Scottsdale, I only want to buy four bedroom and five bedroom homes with a pool in these two golden circles within these two sub markets of Scottsdale that are on a quarter acre lot or larger, right? And I have the opportunity to build a fifth or sixth bedroom. Theoretically, if that's the buy box, now you feed that back into your, into our algorithm. And as new properties come, the thing we're tracking is also physical real estate supply. So for us, density matters, right? Economies of scale. So now that I've identified what the prime product to buy in this market is, the second question I have to ask myself is, can I buy enough of it, right? I don't want to own one in Scottsdale. I want to own 50, right? And how often is that type of product coming in the market? And we all know for the last 12, 18 months, supply has been going down recently, right? So you want to get a better sense of when those properties come up, we want to be able to stack them. And that's why we built technology. You do, you do a great job articulating this. So congratulations. I wish people could see you. It looks like you're in some virtual world there in an office. No, tech it's the office I'm building, Josh. <laughs> so let, let's break it down a little more because a lot of great listeners here are curious. So from the outside, I do not own SDR right now. We, of course, I build resorts and turn around distressed resorts all over the country now. And they're very special. But for your business, it sounds like you've Let's start with some easy ones. You've identified some markets where you want your technology, your algorithm to do its research. What are your top 10 markets you want to buy in right now? We don't have, yeah, as I say, 10 of the extensive is always changing. 
we're in Stocksdale, we're in Clearwater and like the Tampa Metro. We're in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, which you and I were joking about right before this. We're in, com- in markets like Blue Ridge, Georgia. We're in McGackiesville, Virginia, right? We're in Memphis, Tennessee. We're in Panama City Beach, Florida, right? To give you a sample there. And for anyone who's curious, we open source our data. And so I come from World Attack for a transparency here at Key. You can go, if you reach out to us and book a call with our team and you're curious, I will send you all our raw data. The only thing we anonymize is the location, right? We want to protect existing investors and prospective ones, but you can see exactly how we're doing on a quarterly basis in real time. Okay. You're talking about your performance. I thought you were talking about where your buy box is in the album. Well, I wouldn't give all that up for free now. Good. I, I I, that say, would be a good fiduciary of me, Josh. Don't do that. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, the buy box. You said out there, there's two key criteria. So we need to learn more about that, if you don't mind. Number one is, is it legal to do a short-term yeah. rental? Now, where does that show up on the MLS? Like, where is that? How does your data get to the bottom of whether that, I didn't, yeah. I imagine yeah. a human can figure it out, but how does a computer figure it out? So a human always verifies it, no doubt about it, right? And we take every extent of measure to do it. And especially once you've been buying a certain area long enough, you kind of know the rules, right? And how things work. But top line, it's not necessarily on the MLS data. And we don't only pull in MLS data, right? And our software doesn't tell us this is a perfectly legal short-term rental. Really what we understand is, for example, in the state of Arizona, we know it's based on what things that we can find. And I think it's SB 179, SB 197, something. A bill that passed in Arizona that made short-term rentals completely by right, unless you're in an HOA, right? That's a bill that passed on the state level. Another piece of data that we'll pull is, for example, in the Poconos, $3 billion worth of revenue taxes schools infrastructure from short-term rentals is generated in that market because it's a tier two destination second home type market, right? They depend on tourism and travel and this type of mobility. The likelihood that that market ever removed short-term rentals would be devastating to say the lack of a better word, right? So the risk profile of entering that market where that already has a defined regulation is a good sign. So really what we ask for technology good, that's is a good point. Yeah. So we're not looking for perfection in data, right? What we're looking for is direction oftentimes. And if we can find that, Hey, we're generating $3 billion of revenue here and we can find existing short-term rental regulation rules, that's usually a good thing that the municipality has accepted it and is starting to tax it. Right. And those are things that we're actually very a big, a big proponent of. I, I like that. So it was only translate. If a municipality like Arizona has said it's by right and there's an official rule that actually moves that market up, let's say it's a green oh, yeah. on the market. If there isn't a regulation, you, you talked about Poconos. So is there actually a vote of confidence in short-term rental in Poconos or just a logical, the opposite would be devastating, which is kind of the argument you just made. The opposite of yeah, if if it became un- illegal, it would devastate them. So that's a good point. But is it is there also the positive statement that it is legal? It is legal because there's existing regulation, right? Okay. So oftentimes the markets that scare us most is when nothing's happened. Right. It's like in this limbo, right? right? Uh, a really great example of this was Houston. Is Houston. Another great example of this was Dallas didn't have any regulations and that they decided to rule one way or the other, right? We don't like entering markets where we can't control what happens next, right? 
And that's a part of key investment thesis. And if that's the case, then the ROI really better be worth it for you to take uh. that risk. In Clearwater, for example, we only buy in unincorporated areas, right? Because you can't tell us necessarily what to do per municipality code, right? In the Poconos, they have defined regulations. In fact, they have very extensive regulation, right? Both on the city, the township, and potential HOA levels means it's been accepted not one layer, but three layers deep, okay. right? So those are things that are actually good signs that give us votes of confidence to add pockets. We have a couple quick questions then. On the second part of your buy box, which was really great, you said it has to have a price to rent ratio. So let me think outside the box here. The old days before the changing um, interest rates, the ratio of an apartment or a house, you'd like to see a month's rent. I'm trying to think. One, What, what was it? A month's rent for... Uh, hmm. I'm trying to think. Yeah, well, it has to be 1% of the purchase price, right? That was like an old technique. What's That's the technique? golden rule back in the day. <laughs> yeah, so what's the technique in STR? What's your price? So to we're generally, system? yep. So for our portfolio, we typically underwrite somewhere between a 17 and a 21% gross revenue to purchase price ratio. So our average purchase price is going to be a half million to $600,000 single family house. That's four bedrooms or larger typically across the country. Uh, with a decent outside space that we can amenitize fairly well. And that's going to do somewhere between 100 to 120 grand in top line gross revenue, right? Because we understand our unit economics and margins stepping backwards. And that's what we underwrite for. If I was to look at, say, some of our uh, earlier properties that have a little bit more finished track record across the board, we typically land somewhere between 25 and 30% gross revenue to purchase price, right? So we're underwriting conservatively and outperforming on top line. Right. So basic idea, $550,000, you want to see $100,000 revenue. Now let's talk about AirDNA. I think yep. you said AirDNA, there's somebody on your team that is from AirDNA. Yeah. So Jamie, Jamie Lane, their chief economist, he's one of our advisors, good friend. And so he definitely leads us with some great insights as well. And he Very publishes cool. on their blog. Yeah. And so I, AirDNA is the leader by far in the space and one of our trusted partners that we rely on. What is going on with like the changes? So I know some markets, I thought in the panhandle of Florida or other areas are trending down in the current year. For example, have you seen that? Have you seen some areas that could do a hundred thousand last year on that same unit? Maybe they're doing 90,000 this year on average, or you're budgeting. Are you budgeting any markets down this year? Yeah, that's a great question. So first and foremost, I think it's important to remember that air DNA in most of the market is mom and pop. 99% of it. I mean, we hear the word mom and pop and that excites us. Yeah. Right. And it just does with most other real estate investors. So when you're looking at that data, a lot of people look at that data and they're like, mm, things are going down, but I, they're not looking at it from an institutional eye, right? That's that data's factoring in people who run a property for a day, people who have two nights a month available, right? So it looks negative when it goes through and through. And Josh, I want to, I want to show you something and I know viewers won't be able to see this, but You'll be able to, you know, comment on it and probably attest to it. Here's our, uh, our performance for Q2. So you talk about versus air DNA and versus, you know, what the market does. We did, what does that number say right there? Q2, 69% yeah. higher than average. Yeah, 100 Right. Ac across the portfolio, we beat our own projections by 25%. We're pacing ahead of revenue by about 23%, right? Yep. And we met our prep and we're far above that. So I wanted to just quickly share that with you. Just on screen, I know viewers all be able to see that, but nice for you to kind of just validate. And everything on AirDNA is every owner, whether it's a property manager, whether it's a someone who's self-managing, whether it's a one bedroom or an bedroom, 
And here's really where the lack of data kind of comes in. If you have a property manager, right? The property manager is the one that we see the revenue as on AirDNA. The problem with the property management industry is you have a property manager and an owner who don't have the same incentives, right? Property manager is going to go to you and say, hey, Mr. Owner, hey, Josh, put in a hot tub. You're going to drive more revenue. But what happens if the owner says no, or they don't want to, you know, pony up the 12 grand to wire that hot tub, right? So the property manager can't actually drive that revenue and the owner doesn't want to pay to amenitize right. it because they don't understand the business. They're busy living life, you know, kids, family, work, totally normal. Now for us, we're the owner, we're the operator, we are the manager. So there is no red tape. So when we're designing and purpose building our homes and renovating them to be well, short-term rentals, right? Those properties are inherently going to outperform the market average just by nature, because we are making the decisions led by data. And when you're making those decisions led by data, the comp set really is yourself, not necessarily anything that's not that in between, right? So those are things that I would say inherently are going to influence us versus, you know, what you see on things like AirDNA. Of course, people are going to see things that are going to come down, but we are the leader in the debates on an institutional level. So I would expect us to do incredibly well. And I mean, how could you not when you have properties like this? Yeah. I mean, they pickleball, basketball, and, and you're looking at my screen here, Josh, mini golf and outdoor bowling. I mean, these are the types of homes that we don't buy them like this. We renovate and build yeah. them to this so standard. So what I'm looking at is homes that have little lots, nice size lots, and yep. that they put putt-putt courses and basketball rings. So tell me what those putt-putt courses and basketball courts, what do those usually cost you? Yeah. I mean, a basketball court can cost you anywhere from 12 to 25 grand, depending on the material and size. And is there concrete not already there and everything else there? Lighting, is there lighting there or not? Pickleball court is something that we do quite often. Oh right? yeah, show and me one of those. Places. Show me one of those. I'd like to see. Yeah, here, I'll, sh I'll show you one. So this one is, this one is a combo basketball court and pickleball court. Right, I see right? That. that. you see right here. You got the lights, right? So you can play at any time of day, right? So to wire all this, it's, it's not cheap, but adding this and you got a, what is it? A six hole mini putt goal. So you got play area for the kids. You got a hot club. Yeah. You got a fire pit area, you got a frisbee, you got outdoor bowling, you got cornhole, you got the pool area, you got the cabanas. All of this stuff isn't cheap, but the ROI from a data-driven perspective is there, right? We're going to get that ROI pretty easily. You know what? I'd love to uh, follow up with you offline. I have a bunch of properties and I always wonder, th this part, always, I'm always curious. So we own hotels and resorts. So I always say, is there a space to crossbreed the two. Have you seen that happen with a highly so, amenitized, let's all boutique hotel become part of Airbnb? I haven't seen it perfectly done well, although I have seen talks of it. I know, I think it was IHG was actually talking about building three bedroom type hotel rooms with some more amenities. I would say the only brand that comes to mind that I think has nailed the cohesive branding and experience. Although I don't know if I would say it's incredibly well amenitized. It's a brand by the name of Incahoots, uh, which you might be familiar with. Um, I've been to their Austin location um, and it's it's a beautiful area. I mean, it's, it's larger units, it's three, four bedrooms in that boutique hotel vibe, beautiful pool um, and everything in that general range. Um, but they're not really, you know, scaling it super aggressively. Right. And it just visualize that for you for, for our guests here. 
this is what you see, right? They have games, they like they use rooftops, right? It's a, it's a group travel, hotel and event space kind of all put together. Restaurants on site, unique things there, draft beer that you don't typically see in certain locations, right? I think they do the boutique model of a hotel very, very well, do they, in my do, opinion. Do they use Airbnb? Air I'm sorry. Airbnb yeah, they, they, they have at times. They, they, I've seen them at times, but I don't want to speak for them because obviously I'm not 100% sure, but I have yes, seen them at curious. times, these short commercial OTAs. Yeah, because they're, they're going for that group travel. So let's, let's talk about last thing you're, you've had a successful, I love where you're going. You're basically taking a mom and pop fractured type of industry called short-term rental. And you'd like to raise a lot of retail investor capital, buy a bunch of these. And then at some point they become institutional scale. And what is that business plan? And is it published? See, like, do you say when we hit 300 units, at a valuation of 300 million, we are now institutional. How do you do it? So last week, I'll give you just real time data. Last week, I got a call for a, from a large institutional operator. Uh, let's just say it's one of the largest institutional operators, real estate in space. And their concern with entering the Airbnb space is they haven't been able to find a transaction where they can buy 500 plus homes. Doesn't exist today. And I said, well, like your lucky day, we're building it. They asked me how many doors we had and it's like about 120 or so. And they said, well, that's interesting, but it's not enough. Right. Right. And so their number was roughly around that 500 door number. Right. Um, and they're incredibly interested in the space. Most institutions we've ran across and we talked to an institution a month, it seems like at this point, none of them want to build it. The risk of building it, they don't know how to build it. It's too slow for them to build. And so they want to buy it. And that's the value we're creating for ourselves and for our community of investors, right? So we're taking that arbitrage model, one buying one, Lego by Lego, doing it here, doing it at scale. And eventually over time, over the next two, three, four, five, six years, you know, we'll, if someone wants to buy a portfolio of stabilized, institutionally operated short-term rentals with financials, which I say that because most mom and pops don't have good financials for their short-term rentals. That you can't actually validate their data, but they will with us, right? We'll have books right. and records and everything. We run a fund, so we have to, right? right? They'll be able to buy it with confidence, right? To actually run and execute it with historical data on how to operate it, right? Because they'll be able to see what you got per night. We have data to the tens. How much money did we make on July 4th versus July 6th, right? And buy property by the second. When bookings came in, where they go, booking lead time. We'll be able to answer all those questions because we have it today but we'll be able to provide it to the buyer. So you're right on the money with where the exit is going. And with that exit, what, what is the difference between just selling 500 houses? Let's just say the exit. Well, how about this? Here's the curious question. Cause this is actually happening to us. You know, we're scaling up a prop business and we're looking at multiple ways to give our investors a big return. So what is your current business model? Five-year hold. That's what you've told your investors and that's what you're working toward. Yep. And what would happen if you've switched? It sounds like you've switched to this portfolio building. Is that going to take more than five years? What, what's the model there? No, I mean, we firmly believe that we'll be able to exit in the next four to six years. Right. And that's generally been the plan and will always be the plan. Now, the good news for us is we positioned our portfolio to be flexible. And I think that's important for any fiduciary of a fund to do. Right. Right. 
um, you know, if we're generating eight, nine, 10, 12% cash on cash in our worst case scenarios, we got to hold a little bit longer. I think we'll be all right. Right. Um, separately, all our debt is fixed for 10 plus years. Most of it's fixed for 30. So we're, yeah, we're never four sellers. Who, who did the yep. debt? We're, How did the debt? Uh, several partners. Right. Um, and it's not just a single lender, uh, although we have a few that we primarily like we work with and use, but every single property is its own loan. Right. There's no cross collateralization. Everything's fixed, no floating, no balloons. Right. So if we needed to hold for a decade, we could. I'm not saying we will, but if we needed to, we could. And we're never going to be a forced seller in the meantime. Yeah. It's great. Have you guys liquidated any in the ever, ever since you've started? We did. We did a test. We sold eight uh, to the retail market, you know, kind of just MLS to mom and pops. And we sold those between a five and a half and a six and a half cap and kind of proved our pieces. Those went like hotcakes. And honestly, was not something I expected. Uh, we were like, wow, this, this also opened up another opportunity of a business model to exit right. to mom and pops. Cause you and I both know that a lot of people want to buy turnkey real estate. Yeah. It's just, they can't find it. And if we can give them a turnkey product with historicals already done up and here's everything, and you know, maybe we'll even manage it for you for, for six months. Right. And those types of things now that becomes really attractive as an offer in the marketplace. Well, you've done a great job of explaining your business. Um, I'm impressed. And how can people follow up with you? You guys can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only seat for Foggy that I know uh, on LinkedIn, uh, techfester.com, book a call, learn about the investment, see if it's a good fit for you. Um, meet the team, see the data, right? Learn about the industry. We're here to educate. That's awesome. Thank you very much. Great job today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.